and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to Lillian Lee, author of Number One Chinese Restaurant. We discuss how finding the perfect setting can be just the spark you need to kickstart your novel, showing your character's qualities in ways other than dialogue, and the importance of writing with your reader in mind. podcast happy to be here thank you we're, yeah we're so thrilled because we loved your book but for anyone who hasn't yet got their hands on a copy of your debut number one chinese restaurant please can you tell us a little bit what it's about yes absolutely uh so number one chinese restaurant basically takes place at an upscale peking duck restaurant outside dc and it looks at the lives of the family that owns the restaurant the hans as well as their longtime employees and what happens one summer when a tragedy basically befalls this beloved restaurant and this, uh, in many ways, working family can no longer go back to this place of business and also, uh, in their imaginations, their, their second homes anymore. Cool. And, and um, we always like to hear kind of how the idea is sparked in, our, in the author. So could you maybe um, tell us how you came up with the idea and how long it's been in the making? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I find that whenever I start to talk about how I came up with uh, this book, I tend to start with the summer before I even you know imagined this book uh, into existence, which happened to be the summer where I was a waitress at an upscale Peking Duck restaurant outside DC. Uh, because I think that inevitably when people find out that I worked in a restaurant really similar to the one fictionalized in my book, the question you know is immediately, oh, did you? work in this restaurant in order to, you know, write a novel about the experience. Um, and the thing is, I wish that, you know, novel writing was so forward-thinking, right, that you could say, hey, this seems like an interesting menu or an interesting idea, so let me go ahead and just, like, make this happen. But uh, honestly, you know, all I actually was thinking in that moment was just, I'd like to make a little bit of money before I go to grad school. <laughs> Um, and I didn't even actually intend for it to be a Chinese restaurant. Um, I just wanted to work in any kind of restaurant at all, but I didn't know at the time that you could just walk into any neighborhood restaurant and ask to see the manager, uh, for a job application, right? I didn't know that it was as simple as that. So I found this restaurant gig in a very roundabout way, which is that my mother was slipping through the Chinese language newspaper that she gets delivered to the house and happened to be, you know, browsing the classified section and found a help wanted ad from this restaurant and, and sent me there. Um, and, you know, when I showed up um, and interviewed, got the job, showed up the next day, I very quickly realized that I was not who they normally hired. Uh, I was, for one, at least uh, about 30 years younger than every single person who worked there, <laughs> which was really surprising. Uh, I thought I was going to you know, have a summer to like along with a lot of other 20-year-olds uh, in their first restaurant job. But in fact, I was working with you know, the utmost professionals who were really surprised to see this, you know, they called me like little sister, this little sister working in their midst. Um, 
I was the only American-born Chinese person. Everybody <laughs> else had immigrated. Um, I spoke English as the first language. They spoke English as the second, third, sometimes fourth language. And I think, you know, most egregiously of all, I had zero restaurant experience. And, you know, they had been working in restaurants for years, decades, sometimes their entire lives. Um, and so, you know, the question kind of shifts at that point from, oh, okay, so you didn't know, you know, when you got the job that you were going to write about it. But certainly once you showed up, you must have realized. And again, the answer is no, because I was actually so bad at this job that I spent most of it, you know, just trying to get through the day. And, uh, and I spent actually a lot of time hiding in the walk-in fridge so that I could have like a cry between oh, which made it into the bed. bad tables. <laughs> the walk-in fridge, um, is a lot of action happens in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I definitely, you know, took advantage of that later in the writing experience, but was not taking advantage of it at the time. So I think it was only actually once I quit that job, after, you know, working that restaurant for barely a month, I lasted, I think, exactly four weeks um, before I, you know, threw in the towel, uh, told them I had another job somewhere else to get out of the, the experience. Um, and then, you know, I realized that I was, um, you know, I'd assumed that I quit the job because it was so physically challenging. Um, and it was really hard to, you know, stand for that many hours to, you know, hold these kind of heavy trays and so everything was achy but actually it was once the aches went away that I realized that I hadn't been paying attention to this much deeper uh, emotional ache um, which was just the I think the loneliness and the the added effect of alienation of you know not just being a, a waiter but being a Chinese waiter in a Chinese restaurant and the sort of extra level of in some ways almost you know inadvertent dehumanization that was happening where I felt like the people I was serving really did not see me as another human being. And I actually felt like me and my coworkers represented more like the furniture of the place, you know, kind of like these foreign objects than living, breathing people. Um, and it was really, I think, through understanding the emotional ache and thinking about how my coworkers dealt with this, how they managed to be in that space for not just four weeks, but you know, years and decades that I really started to imagine, you know, number one Chinese restaurant and to imagine that world and the people who occupy and shape and are shaped in that world. And you mentioned that you were the youngest by a significant, a significant amount. Yes. That, that has been reflected in your characters because they do range from, right, from teenagers all the way up to people who are actually nearing the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. What was it about incorporating that sort of multi-generational narrative that really appealed to you when it came down to sit and start writing? Mm. I think that, um, you know, what I really wanted to capture was this feeling of history um, that this restaurant um you know, occupies just the very fact that the Beijing Duck House, which is the name of the restaurant in the book, has been around for uh, 30 years. And what does it mean to know somebody and to see somebody in a context for three decades? You know, I, how priceless that kind of um, time is, even if you aren't close to the person, even if you're not blood related. 30 years is something that is 
in effect, irreplaceable. I mean, you just can't remake that kind of relationship with anybody else. And so just because of the practicality of how, I guess, generations work, 30 years ends up encompassing, I think, you know, two to three generations. And then it just became a really interesting, you know, thought exercise of, oh, how does, you know, each generation view this restaurant, this working family, you know, the people who come before them and after them. Uh, and in some ways, you know, I'm not the best at plot. Um, and I think that, you know, having multiple generations um, and a lot of different family structures becomes a kind of self-sustaining plot because it just becomes interesting and dramatic just to see how certain people vibe off of other you know, generations and what they're pushing up against. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a lot of what drew me into that space. That's really interesting because um, I was going to ask you about how you plotted how you approach yeah. it. Like, I know, because it is, it, is, it is a very compulsive read, you know, like there's, even though like, you know, obviously there's a few big events, but I found like it, it felt well, really well plotted when I was reading it. Thank you. Um, and I was going to ask whether you kind of wrote towards specific events or obviously like you just said, you start kind of started with your characters and let, just kind of let the magic happen. Were yeah. you, so did you plan the scenes that you knew you were going to have or did you just kind of let your characters kind of riff off each other? Yeah, that's a great question because in in some ways my answer is both. Um, But actually what I was hoping and anticipating when I first started writing this book was that I was just going to let my characters roam free. Um, Because I actually came into writing... by writing fan fiction. Have you guys heard of fan fiction? We have, of course. Yeah. What kind of fan fiction? Well, I started out... um, So I started when I was, you know, nine years old. So it was Harry Potter. And it was basically, you know, how many years ago between Harry Potter books, I just... I had to sustain, right, my obsession with that world by writing. Uh, And I wrote with friends, and it was just the most fun. Um, But, you know, kind of what is really great about fan fiction is that you essentially steal these ready-made characters um, and just kind of like set them into whatever setting or relationship you want them to be in. Um, And so for me, for a while, I think inadvertently writing was just make your characters and then, you know, put them into a kind of dollhouse setting and see what they make of the world that you've built for them. Um, And so the first, you know, let's say like year or so of writing this book, um, I, I was essentially using that model um, and thinking that, you know, I was writing hundreds of pages. I was like, I've got a book. I'm so excited. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much done with my book. And I showed it to uh, my professor at the University of Michigan where I was getting my master's in fine arts. And she said, this is great. This is a zero draft of a book, uh, which is really excellent. And I thought that doesn't sound like I'm close to finishing at all. And that's, I think, when she realized, she told me that essentially I had, I had no plot. I had no story. I just had my characters, and I was having them essentially go about their everyday routines and learning about them in that way. Uh, but that's when uh, this teacher of mine, Eileen Pollock, sat me down and, and essentially gave me, you know, I think the building blocks for plot that I'm, I'm going to use potentially for every book going forward, which is she told me to essentially think about plot as a set of dominoes. And what you essentially want is, you know, two to three big ass dominoes where, you know, the tipping over of that first domino and the effects and consequences take you through maybe the first third of the book until those consequences inevitably end up hitting that second big ass domino. 
and so on and so forth till you get to that final domino. And once you put that analogy into my head, I actually have an email that I found recently that actually has me writing domino one, domino two, <laughs> domino three, which I emailed back and forth with Eileen about just to be like, can you check my dominoes for me? Um, and that's actually how I ended up writing the plot. You know, I had these characters, which was great because I actually knew them, you know, pretty intimately. And that, I think, allowed me to figure out what those dominoes were going to be. But until I got those dominoes, it was unreadable, those pages. Uh, and I don't think I ended up using any of them. My God, that is such good advice. And it's just the advice that I need right now. I've got all of the, all of the character stuff, but none of the plot stuff. So that is, it's all about dominoes. Yeah, and, and thinking know. about how one scene will impact upon the next and then that will impact upon the next and how it will build cumulatively as well because I think right. we often think you know well I, I know I want a big I want a car crash and then there's going to be the fallout from the car crash and this but actually it's all those little things just impacting on the next thing that happens I think that's mm -hmm. something like Amy said that's really tangible advice were any of the characters easier to write than others or did mm. any of them did any of them present very uh, problem problems for you <laughs> I'm sorry I was yeah talking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that um, a lot of uh, readers, um, in talking to them, I think, assume that the older characters, the characters who are in their 50s and 70s, were the hardest ones for me to access because I've never been 50, I've never been 70. Um, but actually, my problem characters were the teenagers, Pat and Annie, who are 17, 19 years old, the youngest characters, and the ones that, you know, are closest to me in age. And so, of course, I also assumed that they would be a breeze to write. Um, but I think what I realized after I'd written them and I'd gotten a lot of feedback about how they just weren't working for a long time was, yes, I have been 17 and I have been 19, but I actually have never been a rebellious 17-year-old. I've never been a, you know, uh, someone who was really actively fighting with her family, actively disobeying, uh, you know, authority figures. And so actually that was so much harder to imagine myself into a space of then of somebody who was in their uh, 50s and 70s whose personalities and, you know, responses to authority were actually a lot more similar to how I tend to go about my life. So, you know, it was clear that I had written these teenage characters in some ways to vicariously live out some of that rebellion that I uh, did not take advantage of at that age. But, you know, I remember Pat, you know, who is a 17-year-old boy, the first couple of drafts I had him basically monologuing to his mother about all the ways in which she had specifically disappointed him, let him down, you know, which he really thought about her and his, her restaurant. And I had friends who were like, have you ever heard a teenage boy speak this much in like a year? You know, like, no, absolutely not. You have to use monosyllabic, you know, responses. And then it became a real challenge of how do I, you know, actively uh, get this character who can only speak one syllable at a time to, you know, actually show how angry he is and the depth of his hurt. Uh, so I think that was actually the real issue is, you know, I've always been like a real loquacious, <laughs> obedient kid. So to write, you know, taciturn, angry, rebellious kids was, was really difficult, surprisingly for me. I think that's another excellent tip because <laughs> we often have authors um, tell us that they did more writing in order to kind of get to know their characters or flesh out characters. Maybe they gave them backstory or they put them in a different scenario and did a mm. sort of fan fiction thing there. But the idea of taking something away and saying, right, I'm going to write this character, but I'm not allowed to 
use mm-hmm. more than a paragraph of speech. They're not allowed to leave a certain area. I think that that can be a really useful tip for developing a character. Definitely. And also the thing mm-hmm. the thing that really stuck with me about Pat, even though he he obviously does speak, it's more his actions, <laughs> the way that he behaves that, is, mm-hmm. that really sticks with him as a character. And I think that you you can as a writer can maybe focus too much on what they're saying rather than how they're like it's showing and telling, isn't it? Again, yeah, that kind yeah. of, you know, which is which is interesting. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, something that's really difficult for me to write as well, is just, you know, how does someone, because most people in general don't really like to show those negative emotions. Uh, they show through in kind of inadvertent ways, but, you know, after a while, how do I show a character's angry without having them clench their fist mm-hmm. or, like, bite their lip? Yeah. Uh, at a certain point, I was just like, I should be watching, I don't know, stage actors or something just to see what a, you know, a person acting angry while trying to hide their anger really looks like, because uh, at a certain point, I've run out of metaphors for, you know, <laughs> lip, lip biting. <laughs> uh, and one of the things as well that's so great about your characters is, you know, that they're, they're um, all of them, all of them are like good, mostly good people, but they're all deeply flawed <laughs> humans, you know. Like that's which mm-hmm. is which is which, of course, we all are. And um, mm-hmm. so I just wonder, like, how did you always kind of have that in mind? Because you know, like, you don't want to go into any kind of like. It's often easy to sort of fall into sort of stereotypes with certain characters. Mm-hmm. Or how did you make sure that you kept your characters as multifaceted as you did? Yeah, I think that in some ways I was, um, you know, responding a little bit to the narratives of Chinese and Chinese American characters I've seen in um, American literature, which is it it does tend to fall into a kind of noble, what I call like a noble immigrant trope, which is you know everything is kind of externally happening to the characters. It's it's racism or it's war or it's poverty or it's you know just these uh, these things that they don't have any control over, and then the narrative is, you know, will these immigrants who are good at heart, are they going to be able to overcome those external challenges, or are they going to succumb to it? But in any case, oftentimes, you know, what they have internally remains unchanged. They're, they're good people, they're undeniably good people, and it makes a lot of sense that I think there was a real reason for... Um, the predominance of those narratives, you know, a couple of generations back, because there was still a lot to prove, not just about the humanity of, of immigrants, but the goodness of immigrants. Um, but I felt like there was a space to, uh, you know, to really explore what internal conflicts look like, right? What we kind of like man versus himself, that, that trope would look like with an immigrant character or a cast of immigrant characters, you know, an immigrant character who's uh, dealing with his own pettiness with, you know, those, uh, with human greed, um, you know, just somebody who is messing up his own life, um, because those are the kinds of narratives that, you know, non-immigrant characters get to have all the time. So I think that was definitely part of what I was thinking was I'd like to make a little bit of space for those narratives, especially because I feel like I'm self-sabotaging a lot of times and I wanted to see that in the, um, in the characters that look like me on the page. Um, and I think I was also, you know, just from that brief experience working in the restaurant, um, I just didn't think it was realistic. And in some ways I didn't feel like it was responsible to show characters who hadn't been, you know, actually have their personality shaped by the difficulty and the dehumanization of the work they were doing. Um, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me to have, for example, you know, Nan, you could say she's a negligent mother, 
right? She doesn't pay attention to her son. You can also say that she's a single mother who's working, you know, forced double shifts and six days a week and does not have the time or, you know, the energy to do anything but fall asleep when she comes home. Um, and it just felt like if I didn't show that she messes up in her family life because of the sacrifices that she's making in her professional life for her family, it felt like I wouldn't actually be doing that character and people who live lives like that character uh, justice. So I think that was some of the really lofty ideas I had. But I think also just, you know, elementally, I like, you know, characters who act out. I like bad characters. I like seeing, you know, the mess and seeing the darkness. So, you know, some of it is just, um, I think, for my own pleasure, uh, because I think, you know, a lot of people are more interesting when they're a little good and a little bad. Um, you know, even though there are all these lofty ideas, I, I also just, you know, personally like uh, a messed up character. Yeah. And you, you've touched on something that we really wanted to ask you about, which is writing about family dynamics. A lot of writers, it's such a, it's such such fertile ground for, you know, constructing a novel within. <laughs> you know, what would be your top tips or for um, writers who are looking to create a realistic uh, novel mm -hmm. narrative set within a family, and how mm -hmm. those dynamics work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that. Um, what I really love about writing about family um, is that the issues that a family has with each other feel, you know, so unique to the family dynamic. Um, and at the same time, of course, universal to all families. And so I think the tip that I would give is in some ways to figure out um, the cracks uh, in the family and right into those cracks. Um, because I think that what is really fascinating about uh, the kinds of families that I like to write about is, you know, the sort of dark side of familial love and, you know, familial responsibility. So even though I think that oftentimes uh, when we think of family, we do tend to think of, you know, love and responsibility as, um, you know, the, the hallmarks of a good family, the hallmarks of uh, a loving family, um, I think it's also those exact same hallmarks that end up making familial love feel so fraught and tense and conflicted. So in some ways, it's like <laughs> it's finding like the best parts of family and seeing the ways in which they can curdle and become, you know, pervasive and in some ways hurt people. Uh, that, I, that I think that's really where the, the richness of writing about family is for me. Um, so that's kind of perverse advice, but <laughs> to make something beautiful, <laughs> ugly. Yeah. And also like that, that, that line that you've got on the, on the back of the book, or I read it on a blurb somewhere about, about the book being, um, being about youth and aging, parents and children, and all the ways that our families destroy us while also keeping us grounded and alive. I was like, yeah. right in... Because it's just such a wonderful <laughs> kind of mess of like contradictions and like differences and yeah. Um, so another thing that I found with 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 the book, some some of the scenes are so kind of like cinematic almost. You know, like yeah. I, I just found like some some kind of like almost like took my breath away because like some of the because of how like dramatic a scene was. I was like, my god, like. <laughs> and I I wonder, um, yeah, if you could kind of give us your insight into what you think makes a good scene within a book. And um, mm. what factors do you think do you think they really need to make it work to make a scene work? Mm. I think that um, 
you know, I can definitely uh, start that question um, by bringing up, you know, a scene that didn't work for a long time. Um, without giving up too much away, it's a scene that's still in the book. Um, and in some ways, it's a very, you know, triumphant scene. Uh, it's, it's the scene when Jimmy is at the soft opening of his new restaurant, the Beijing Glory, and everything is going, you know, crazy. Um, and he's realized that he's messed up the ecosystem of the restaurant and that he really you know, didn't see the ways in which his father um, had, you know, thoughtfully planned out his restaurant. Um, and when I originally wrote that scene, it was just, you know, it started off a car wreck and it just became a train wreck and then it became a plane crash. And, then, you know, just the, the wreck of it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, you know, my readers, my first readers were so kind to point out you know, their response to that scene, which is, you know, they start off, the reader starts off uncomfortable and then gets no relief from that discomfort. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, I was such a big reader, I was such a big reader before I ever thought about becoming a writer that I assumed that I would be able to carry that reader's perspective into my work when I was on the other side of things. But actually, I just completely forgot what it was like to be a reader um, and a reader's emotional response to a scene when I was doing uh, the writing part of it. Because I was just doing, I realized, you know, what is fun to do for a writer, which is to make um, an uncomfortable scene worse. Um, and so I think, you know, in some ways, uh, even though it might be counterproductive to take yourself out of the scene to think about the reader in that moment, I think what I ended up doing with the scene was keeping the reader in mind, thinking about when does the reader maybe need a break? When does the reader maybe need the victory for the character to see this character behaving in a surprisingly competent way? Uh, because I would say that Jimmy for the most part, is not the most competent character. Um, and, and what kind of narrative satisfaction and delight comes from a scene where a character actually ends up coming across positively when in the past he's come across as just, you know, the, the biggest mess, the biggest asshole. So I think that, you know, what I learned made a good scene is in some ways to keep the reader in mind or to keep yourself as the reader in mind. Just, you know, what would really surprise me? What would really delight me? And then... What would, it, what would it mean to, to then, you know, change that delight into another feeling? So in some ways, yeah, keeping the reader in mind and keeping things um, multiply toned, I feel like, makes a scene feel a little bit richer. Nice. Great tip. <laughs> Very good tip. Uh, we often ask our um, authors about their writing routines as well. I wonder mm. if you had any particularly in terms of when you wrote, how long you wrote for at each sitting, whether you approached the book chronologically. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing routine, if indeed you have one? Yeah, I think that for, for this book, I think I did have some kind of a routine, or at the very least the writing was regular. I don't think there was really a week that went by without, you know, um, a couple chapters being written. Um, and I think that for this book, it was also, um, really chronological. So, uh, pretty much every chapter that you see was, was written roughly in the order that it appears. And, uh, you know, when I, when I talk about this now, looking back, I'm really shocked by the ease of, with which in the kind of the, the luck and the grace of writing this first novel. I mean, it didn't feel like that at the time, but, you know, now that I'm, 
trying to, you know, see what a new project would look like, trying to begin again, I'm realizing that, you know, it was like a really, really easy process. And I think one that I will just never have be that easy again, because actually right now I'm finding that like uh, a writing routine is not making a lot of sense. Um, I wonder if it's, you know, in some ways I get, I do get bored really easily. So I find that, um, with me, the it's, uh, I have these writing routines for two to three weeks and then I get bored of them <laughs> and then I try and find something new. So, uh, for example, you know, a couple months ago, I, I, I took out an old typewriter of mine that I had, you know, an ex-boyfriend had bought me. Um, and I decided I'm going to, you know, do everything on this typewriter. It's going to slow me down. It's going to make me feel really rooted to the words. Uh, and for about five days, it was so excellent. I was writing a lot and and then after a while I don't know my fingers started hurting and I started getting a really bad headache yeah. actually just from the the keys clacking ding. <laughs> ding, exactly exactly and then you know the typewriter is now just back underneath the coffee table um I was you know writing from a favorite book of mine you know copying the sentences out and then just replacing the details that worked for about a week and then I realized that actually everything I'd written was just a really weird facsimile of my favorite book. Um, so I think, you know, I'm really envious of people who have um, those regular routines because it does, you know, feel like the best way to write is to just get your, you know, ass on the seat and get your fingers typing. But I think what I end up having to do is tricking myself into doing a really basic thing by having like a real spectacle around it. So um, <laughs> I wanted to ask as well, you know, you know, I was just mesmerised about this. Um, with so with in terms of this, the research element of this book. So mm-hmm. obviously you were working in the restaurant for a month. Yeah, but it wasn't. But you said you were sort of like focusing so much on just doing the job that you weren't. It wasn't like you were there to kind of like mine other people's experiences or anything like that. Was there any other elements of research that you did for the book to make sure that it was, you know? Or did did you just did the story just come to you? Like, was was there any kind of more researchy? Yeah, I think that you know. I remember um, when I was first uh, telling people that I was a, a writer, they would you know ask me what kind of writer, and I would always say, oh, the kind of writer who doesn't have to do any research. I write about things I don't have to research, um, and, and I think that you know was something that I tried to make true for this book. It might just be kind of an elemental laziness in me um, or, or a desire to just stay in my world. Um, but there came a time when um, I realized that if I didn't research this uh, element of the book, you know, the entire book had the uh, potential of falling apart. And, and that was, um, um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say there's a fire uh, in the book. Um, that's the tragedy that befalls the restaurant. Um, I think it's pretty well set up within the first chapter. <laughs> um, and I realized that, you know, I have never experienced a fire. I don't know what it smells like. I don't know what the air, you know, even tastes like, what it sounds like. And this is really, you know, one of the um, climactic moments of the book. The entire book revolves around the realism of this fire. And so if it turns out this fire that I've written based off my imagination and movies that I've seen and YouTube clips, um, and it turns out to be physically impossible, then, you know, this entire book will fail. So I actually remembered when I first moved to Michigan for grad school, there was um, a pizza place a couple blocks from where I lived that burned down in the middle of the night in January. 
Um, and it was actually so cold that when the firefighters were, um, you know, blasting their hoses, there was just icicles dripping off of, you know, their hoses. It was that cold. And so, of course, everybody was just, you know, uh, whispering about how it was, it was an arson. You know, there was no way a fire could break out and burn down an entire pizza place in the dead of January. Um, and I ended up finding the article for this, you know, um, for this pizza place. Uh, this happened maybe a year or two years um, before I started writing. And I found the name of the fire investigator who worked the case. Um, and because she was a government worker, I found her email really easily. And I just I sent her an email. Um, and I, I never assumed that she would write back because I thought, you know, I'm an unpublished writer who was asking about how to set fires, you know, like who in their yeah, right mind. Yeah. <laughs> would entertain an interview with me um but she actually wrote back I think that afternoon um and I think that's when I realized that uh people I think are really game to talk about areas that they have expertise in um and that's you know often their jobs like I'm really enjoying this conversation right now <laughs> because I get to talk about something I know um and so we, we sat down for coffee, and I basically ran her through the scene, um, and that took about 10 minutes. Uh, and she was like, yes, that's physically possible. No, that's not anything that could happen. And, you know, she helped me write a fire scene that actually uh, was, you know, made sense, was even commonplace. Um, and then, you know, I realized that I just had general questions and curiosities about her life and, and her job. And so we just started talking about more general topics. And I think actually those then, you know, 30 to 40 minutes where we just talked about her life and her work were so much more fruitful, actually, wow. than, yeah, her running through the stuff that I had written. And then when I went back, you know, I rewrote the entire scene, not just to include her tips, but to actually include the little snippets of our conversation um, about, you know, just how fire works and, and how her job works. Um, she had just some really great lines uh, that just felt like kind of like found poetry to me that I ended up copying verbatim into the book. Um, and so I think that, you know, even though I think there is this part of me that's scared to go out and interview people and do research, it's that was such a fruitful experience that I feel like I have to remind myself that that um, was so helpful so that I can go out and, and, and go out into the world and talk to people in the future. Yeah, that, that scene is when I was talking about cinematic scenes. Sorry. <laughs> it, was, yeah, it was, um, it was, yeah, that, that scene I was like, oh my, you know, oh, that really, I, you can tell that you put a lot of work into it. I wonder whether, had you not worked in the restaurant, it's, this may be yeah. an impossible question to answer, but had you not worked in the restaurant, do you think you still would have produced a book that looked at similar themes or maybe kind of set the family in a similar sort of scenario? Mm -hmm. Do you, do you mm -hmm. think that kind of that was that that maybe kind of sparked and maybe a setting? But do you think that anything you produced would have looked at the similar sorts of themes that this book does? Yeah, that's such a great question, um, because it's definitely one that I've been thinking about a lot, um, after, you know, in the writing, after the writing, because, you know, like I said, people do tend to ask if I, um, if working in that restaurant was the reason why I wrote the book, and so for a while, of course, I wanted to distance myself from that experience, because I wanted the book 
and the fictional restaurant to stand on its own. But also the truth is that even though I worked in that restaurant for just four weeks and I didn't really take a lot of that restaurant and put it into my book, um, you know, I don't think that book would exist if I had not worked in that restaurant. And I think what it is is that the themes, I think, would probably still exist. Those are the things that um, have always preoccupied me in my short stories uh, and failed novels that I wrote before this one and the failed novels that I've written after this one. I think those are just the themes of my life. Um, and what I was probably looking for in some ways is the perfect um, setup where those themes would come alive. And, and I wonder if in some ways that's what a lot of writers or a certain kind of writer is looking for when they're looking for that inspiration is, is that perfect setting. And I think that Chinese restaurant, you know, it, it was like when I started thinking about it as a place to set a book, everything clicked, you know, um, even just on the most basic level of I wanted to write a Chinese American narrative where I didn't have to name the characters as Chinese or Chinese American, that they would be defaults in the same way that whiteness tends to be default. In, in characters, um, a Chinese restaurant gives me that default. And so um, I think that it was pure luck and pure chance, and I'm so, so grateful and blessed to have stumbled upon that perfect setting, because uh, it was, I think it was the foundation for the book. We have to thank your mum, really, for finding yes. that. Yes, <laughs> I'm always thanking my mother. All down to her. <laughs> and, and I'm interested in, how, in these failed novels. How many, how many failed novels do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, there, I think that a novel, I, I, I tend to call things that get to a certain page uh, number uh, a failed novel and before that it's just a failed project. <laughs> so you don't know what it's going to be. But before the novel about the Chinese restaurant, number one Chinese restaurant, um, I was actually, when I was working at the uh, duck house I was working at, during the little break I would get between lunch and dinner shift, I would run to the Panera across the street and I would, you know, buy the cheapest thing they had and then write this novel that I was working on, um, which was actually a, a beach novel. Um, and it was about two families that keep running into each other at the beach. Uh, so really, I think the polar opposite of a Chinese restaurant novel. <laughs> And are, you, and are you writing anything? Are you writing anything now? I think that um, since I think I could probably say that I have had three failed novels since this uh, this one came out. Oh, wow! wow. Uh, and and in some ways they feel not so much failed in the way of a beach novel. I'm like I am not interested in them at all. I don't know what I was thinking. It, it feels almost more like in some ways I'm still looking for that perfect foundation to put those things into so I've tried out a couple of other foundations now and seeing how far they'll take me um and, and none of them quite have the endurance and the stamina um to take me to a full novel one of the failed novels I'm trying to turn into a short story now which is um a trick I've learned from my professors who, who always try and salvage their <laughs> their failed novels into a short story or two yeah. uh just because you know you've done the imaginative work to make that space in those characters um so I think you know right now I am still looking for that foundation because I think I have my I have my themes um and I'm just looking for something that, that can spark uh, a world that a novel needs to exist. 
Oh, wow, cool. We can't wait to read what you write next. <laughs> I'm feeling <laughs> optimistic right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'll find that setting. Yeah, we're reading you'll for you. <laughs> Liam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.